Here's a reminder from Percival Scientific. Science hasn't stopped, and neither have we. Visit the Percival Scientific website to see our new 4-color and 7-color LEDs for plant growth. Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. Apparently, they're, they're colonizing plants that aren't aware they're there. They can just sit there and hunker in the bunker way below the level of visibility. And they're really, really good at hanging on. Imagine, if you will, a superhero team whose powers include hanging out for long periods of time, doing nothing, and making an unsightly mess of where they live. No, they're not mutant middle schoolers. They're fungi. Once we have a good foundation, which we're getting now, I think we can start to make real progress in sort of unshackling the management of this disease from from obligatory fungicides every 10 to 14 days. Today we're going to meet Sooty Blotch and Flyspeck, two fungi which, if not for their messy habits, would be so harmless that we would be exaggerating to call them pathogens. That's today on Plantopia. Hi, my name is Mark Leeson, and I'm heading the task force that's producing the Plantopia podcast. I work at Iowa State University. I'm a professor, and I've been here 34 and a half years. Plant pathologists don't have a lot of imagination sometimes when it comes to naming a disease. And today we're going to be talking about diseases that cause symptoms that look like sooty blotches and fly-like specks on a crop. What do you suppose that a plant pathologist has named this? Sooty blotch and fly speck. (laughs) Why would they do that? What are the chances of say that? Yes. What are the chances of that happening again? Well, I think it's very evocative, David, because they the uh, visible parts of these fungi are sooty blotches and specks that look like something a fly did. I think anyone who's ever encountered this has probably most likely encountered it on an apple. Uh, that's where I've seen the disease most, but it does have a fairly broad range of surfaces on, on which it will grow. But could you just describe for us what it looks like on an apple? Okay, some of you who have maybe only bought... Apples at grocery stores may not have seen it, but if you have your own backyard apples or if you've been to farmer's markets, you may have seen this on apples. It's um, two, There are two basic looks. One is a, a sort of a cluster of tiny dots, and I'm talking really, you know, just sort of like a, the uh, tip of a pencil, really small dots. They're dark black, shiny black, but they're in groups, maybe dozens, even a hundred, uh, and that can be like an inch or two across on an apple. That's one look, the, the, the sort of fly speck look. The other look of these fungi is uh, it looks like a kind of a smudgy dark brown to black again um, anywhere from half an inch to an inch in size on the apple just on the surface of the apple but the thing is we don't normally see that 
in fruit that we're buying uh, at a fruit stand or in the certainly not in the supermarket. Why is that? Well, that's because we're buying Disneyland fruit, David. We're buying fruit that um, is a, has a very high level of cosmetic beauty. And there is a price to be paid for that beautiful fruit, and that is that um, uh, fungicides uh, oftentimes need to be applied to these fruit to uh, keep the sooty blotch and fleischbeck fungi under control and, and give you that surface beauty. Now, there are certainly diseases that attack apples that cause more than cosmetic damage. Uh, but if I understand it, you're saying the sooty blotch and fleischbeck fungi are not in that category. They're largely cosmetic. Yes, they're entirely cosmetic or, well, I'd say very, very largely uh, cosmetic. So if you closed your eyes and somebody put two apples in front of you, one of them covered with sooty blotch and fleischbeck and the other uh, completely clean and beautiful, and somebody asks you to bite into them, let's say they're the same variety, you couldn't tell the difference in taste. The sooty blotch and fleischbeck apple would taste just like the cosmetically perfect apple. Those fungi, sooty blotch and fleischbeck fungi won't hurt you. They're not uh, a health threat. They don't affect the taste of the apple. Uh, but they're something that you're not likely to pick out of the bin at your favorite supermarket. It sounds almost like from a producer and consumer perspective that both parties are equally to blame in this situation if we wanted to assign blame. Consumers want uh, uh, an attractive fruit uh, if they're given a choice between two equally priced apples, one that looks perfect and one that does not, they would be uh, understandably choosing the perfect apple. The producer, they produce what the consumer wants. So how do we change that calculus to result in a better outcome? I think we need more sustainable ways to control these fungi. They say they just live on the surface of the apple. We've, we've been relying on fungicides for 100 years. And they do the job. These aren't difficult fungi to kill with fungicides. But I think we, we need to look down some other avenues. And these are very understudied fungi, David. We need, but we need to do some work on the biological control side to look at other organisms that live on the surface of apples that might antagonize or uh, suppress or control these sooty blotch fungi. I'm talking about benign organisms, that microbes that live on the surface of fruit that, that may well uh, be um, contest that surface with the sooty blotch and suppress it. The other option, uh, and this is a would be really desirable would be to get genes or breed genes into apples that are that, that enable the apple fruit to be resistant to sooty blotch and fleischbeck. We don't have that yet. Uh, that's a long-term goal, but it would uh, certainly uh, help solve the problem. These aren't the only diseases of apples, but they are important because during the summertime they they demand a certain number of fungicide sprays under the current way things are done, and and it's. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that the blame situation fits here. Consumers certainly want pretty apples. We're, we're all consumers. We all buy apples, or most of us do. Uh, and so it's not, uh, it seems logical that the uh, apple orchardists would uh, try to deliver what we want to buy 
but I don't think it always has to be like this. Uh, this is, uh, again, uh, I would call them a backwater of um, plant pathology research, the sooty blotch and flyspeck fun fungal group. And so we're really just starting to open up the, the study of this group. And, and once we have a good foundation, which we're getting now, I think we can start to make real progress in sort of unshackling the management of this disease from from obligatory fungicides every 10 to 14 days. In general, there are more good microbes than there are bad ones, but the bad ones get all the publicity. <laughs> Why do you think this particular group is relatively understudied? Well, that's a good question. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're hard to tell apart. People started studying these in the 1830s through a microscope and looking at them on fruit and wondering what they were. But it was really difficult for the people who study fungi, who are mycologists, to, to separate one from another. And if you can't separate the individuals or the characters from each other. It's like reading a book and, you, and you're and you having a hard time keeping the characters straight. Well, you're not very interested in that book. So it seems logical or, or not surprising that mycologists have sort of avoided and plant pathologists have sort of avoided this group because of the difficulty of telling one species of sooty blotch and flyspeck fungus from another. This is not just an academic concern because if you don't know who they are, it's really hard to say, uh, to study or figure out how they behave and how we might defeat them. First of all, you have to know your enemy, and that's been a real struggle for 175 years. Right. If we were to classify mammals by their appearance, a black and white cat doesn't look remarkably different from a skunk, uh, but it can make a very different impact on you if you make that mistake. I like the analogy. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, that's a uh, uh, yeah. Uh, there's uh, they don't the the blotch and flyspeck fungi are are cryptic. That's that's a term that's used by mycologists. They're cryptic. It means that there are many kinds that are that look the same. You look at them on the apple, and there might be twenty or thirty kinds of blotch fungi that that to the naked eye look the same. And um, it's going to be really hard to sort those out without some extra weapons on your side. What exactly are they living on when they subsist on the surface of an apple, which is really just a, a kind of a waxy coating? There doesn't seem like there's much there to for the uh, poor fungus to eat. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to feel sorry for sooty blotch and flyspeck fungi. They're, they seem like exiles, right? They're out there on the surface of the fruit, and um, they're bombarded by... Uh, ultraviolet light every time the sun comes up and, and light shines on the apple they have nowhere to hide uh, that you know the waxy surface is like a bowling alley I mean it water just runs off it so it's it, it's almost like a desert most of the time unless it's raining or um, there's dew on there it's extremely dry environment and also during most of the time that that apple is on the tree there's very little to eat so out there on the peel on the edge of the wax you're 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 starving. Uh, you're being bombarded by rays. You're you're drying up. It's it's an extreme environment. Really extreme place to live. So, if we were to be teleological about this and give them purpose, we would say they they really picked a poor neighborhood in which to live. And yet, um, these fungi have been doing this for a very long time. Yes, and not only on apples. They're 
living on the surface wax of hundreds of different kinds of plants, an enormous diversity of plants, stems, leaves, fruit. We just encounter them in agriculture and, and uh, you know, in, in the grocery store through Sudi Blatch and Fleisbeck, but uh, they're, they're very uh, versatile, you might say, in terms of the host plants that they grow on. They, are, they do specialize in growing in plants, but it's a wide, wide variety of plants. Has this had any genetic consequence for them in, in choosing to live in this environment? Yeah, and that story's been kind of uh, uncovered in the last oh, five or six years by uh, some research that was done at Northwest ANF University in, in Yangling, China, and that's a collaboration that, that uh, we've had with them for a number of years. And they did what's called, uh, well, it's called functional genomics, basically. They, they, they looked at they looked at uh, fungi that are a little bit similar genetically to, to sooty blotch, but they have different niche. Maybe they actually penetrate into a plant. And they compared those to sooty blotch fungi. And through, through a series of probability programs, they were able to show that sooty blotch and flyspeck fungi didn't start out as sooty blotch and flyspeck fungi, they evolved from ancestors that were fundamentally different. They were classical plant pathogens that penetrated into the plant tissue where it's nice and moist and there's lots to eat. But over evolutionary time, they began to occupy this surface niche where seemingly it's a very tough, tough place to live in comparison. How did they do that kind of evolutionary change? Well, they got simpler. They gave up part of their genome. They became simpler organisms. They simply had, they discarded things that they didn't need. If you are a sooty blotch and flyspeck fungus, what do you really need out there? Well, you don't need any enzymes that enable you to penetrate through the plant or to counter the plant's defenses against you, the fungus. Your needs are rather simple out there on the surface. So all those genes that are responsible for all those attack and defense enzymes that plant penetrating fungi have were discarded and and so the genome got smaller and simpler there was a couple things that were kept Uh, one of those uh, was that um, the uh, ability to produce melanin is very much enhanced in sooty blotch fungi. Melanin is the stuff that makes your skin darker when you get a suntan. It's a similar biochemical to what's in these sooty blotch fungi. And they have a lot of it because it's a really great for protecting against UV rays from the sun. They also have some enzymes that allow them to break down wax and break down the cutin, which is part of that surface wax area. And so they can kind of hunker down into the wax a little bit, a little harder to wash off. So it's kind of like a foxhole that they're that they're that they're um, hunkering down in on this on this hostile surface of the of the fruit. So they've changed fundamentally. They they've gotten smaller. Oh, by the way, they gave up sex, which certainly simplifies your life a lot. And uh, and they just became these organisms that that stopped fighting it out with the plant and just lived there on the surface not having any, apparently, any biochemical contact with the plant, other than once the fruit become larger and they start to mature, the starches inside the apple turn to sugar. And those smaller molecules, the sugar molecules, begin to leak 
through the apple skin onto the surface and all of a sudden the grocery store is open for the sooty blotch fungi which have been living on practically nothing on the surface for most of that fruit maturation period but right at the end when the sugars are, are developing, all of a sudden they, they have a lot to eat and they grow really quickly on the surface. So right there in September, if you have a fall um, maturing apple, right there in September and October um, can be a real bonanza for sooty botch and flyspeck fungi because suddenly there's nutrients. And I imagine this has caused a lot of confusion in trying to control the fungi because if you're trying to suppress them when they appear as symptoms, you're missing the colonization phase, which may occur months earlier. Yeah, that's a really hard one to understand, right? I mean, they're, they're, they can just sit there and hunker in the bunker way below the level of visibility. And they're really, really good at hanging on. They're just standing, staying on the surface, tiny little colonies with their melanin, but so small you can barely see them. And they're just waiting for an advantageous environment. That usually means... All of a sudden, I'm getting I'm getting sugars through the peel, and uh, maybe I've got a, a little bit of rain and dew, and and it's off to the races. And they have the capability to turn it on and grow for them relatively fast. But they're slow-growing, modest organisms most of the time. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Conviron is the world leader in controlled environment systems for plant science research. Conviron's reach-in plant growth chambers, walk-in rooms, and Argus control systems provide precise, uniform, and repeatable control of temperature, light, humidity, CO2, and other environmental conditions. Applications include plant growth, entomology, tissue culture, germination, and other research where tight environmental controls are required. Learn more at conviron.com or contact us at info Now, back to the show. Is there a particular window of opportunity for these fungi to become established on an apple and then that window is gone? Or do they colonize the apple repeatedly through the season but at an inconspicuous level? Yeah, and more like more like choice B there, um, David. Uh, there, we've done some research in in our lab that shows that these these uh, spores of these fungi are dropping out of the sky onto the apple uh, almost uh, throughout the the apple maturation period, uh, which it can be three or four months depending on the type of apple you're talking about. It depends on the species of sooty blotch and fly speck. Some uh, f- uh, species will drop their load of spores earlier in that fruit maturation period. Others will drop them a little bit later. So there's some characteristics of sooty blotch fungi that that uh, that reflect how they how, how and when they drop their spores. But there are some species that will drop their spores anytime, uh, right up until harvest. They'll still be dropping spores, uh, and uh, they're just so small, of course, that you can't see them, and you have to wait for the visible colonies to develop. But they're they're very good at hunkering down. I call them stealth fungi. Because they're they're there on the surface, you can't see them until close to the end of the season. And also, the apple tree and the apple fruit doesn't know they're there. That's a peculiarity of this group of pathogens. They're they're sitting on the on the surface. There's no 
chemical crosstalk, no attack and defense biochemically going on between the fungi and the host. That makes them really different, really um, interesting and unique as as pathogens. They're they're apparently they're they're colonizing plants that aren't aware they're there. So if the spores that initially establish sooty blotch and flyspeck on the fruit are coming uh, from the atmosphere, presumably they're also getting into the atmosphere from some kind of reservoir host. They're on some other plant. Where is that plant? And can we get rid of this and break the disease cycle in that manner? That would be a classic way to control diseases. The little bit of research that's been done on where these spores are coming from suggests that the sources are outside the orchard. At least that's true in in United States orchards. Uh, There's all kinds of plants outside there. Uh, Raspberries would be an example. Blackberries. Uh, Some some trees, uh, leaves on some trees can be... uh, places where sooty blotch and flyspeck fungi will grow and then they can produce spores and of course outside the orchard nobody is spraying fungicide so they're they're building up out there and when uh, you have a a rainy period with some wind behind it those spores can uh, float uh, into the orchard uh, up to several hundred yards Uh, and so you'll often see more sooty blotch next to let's say a woodland that's that adjoins an orchard than you will in the in the middle of the orchard farther away from the woods is the fungus uh benefited by um by dew formation and uh abundant uh relative humidity and water uh, films on the surface of the fruit Yes, to all of the above. Uh, it lo- these fungi like rain. Remember, even though they're you think they're out there in the environment and, and they have lots of moisture, they're living on you know uh, a bowling alley. They're living on wax, and it's 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 hydrophobic. There's not much water on there. So, uh, yes to do, a yes to rain. Um, those definitely give some stimulus and these little bitty hunker in the bunker fungi will start to put out tendrils and start to grow a little bit larger um even though they're, they're there's not a lot to eat there they get a little encouragement from the from the presence of water and they, they will splash from apple to apple we've shown that in our research that um that you'll you'll have certain of those spores will splash off one fruit and go to the one down below and you'll get a kind of a fruit to fruit transmission kind of thing within the same tree that way so you would think from the appearance of the symptoms that these fungi would be much more conspicuous on a lighter colored apple a green or a yellow skinned apple rather than a dark red one Um, but is there uh, differences in resistance among popular apple varieties with respect to susceptibility to sooty blotch and flyspeck? It's a really good question, and and all the available information would suggest that there are not differences. We wish there were. Then we could use certain varieties of apple as sources of genetics that we could uh, eventually breed back that characteristic into other varieties. You're right that that uh, yellow-skinned apples, uh, certainly the these dark fungi are more conspicuous on, but um, any apple can get it, uh, and and we, we just don't have that um, apple that's uh, or or even pear pear as sooty blotch will get on pear as well. The only pear that I've never seen sooty blotch on are the Bosque pears that have that sort of a um, a rough uh, roughened brown surface. Uh, 
uh, Sooty Blotch doesn't seem to like uh, that kind of uh, brown, quirky surface. I'm, I'm not sure that Apple, you know, consumers would want brown, rough-looking apples, but that, you know, that might be a starting point for breeders. So if I were a backyard orchardist and I just wanted a few trees and I wanted to be relieved of the problem of sooty blotch and fly speck, what should I do? Close your eyes. <laughs> I mean, this is not a hurtful thing, right? And you're not trying to store your fruit for six months. You're going to eat it within a you know month or two after you get it probably off the tree. Um, if you're growing backyard apples, you have other things that are, you know, maybe more worrisome. Codling moth would be a you know, prominent example, uh, scab probably. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I think you can, you can learn to love sooty blotch and fleisbeck. I have. So Mark, at the time I was in graduate school, many, many years ago, uh, the diagnostic test for identifying unknowns like sooty blotch or fleisbeck, uh, consisted of, you gave the sample to your graduate student and they worked on it. Um, but the tests are, more sophisticated now. How do you tell one of these cryptic species from another? I feel sorry for the graduate student that you would have assigned this to, David, or that maybe you were the graduate student that got this. This is something for a graduate student that you don't like very much and you want to punish because the identification back when you or I were in graduate school was really challenging. And, you know, good scientists beat their brains on sooty blotch and flyspeck for years and finally, you know, abandoned it uh, or, or, you know, just went off to another organism because this is so unrelentingly difficult to identify. What has changed? Well, what has changed is that we, we now have sort of popped the top on understanding the, the, uh, the genetic code of not just fungi, but of course other organisms. Um, you know, we can, we can put our saliva into a, uh, into a test tube and find out uh, that we have a, a long lost second cousin. And in the world of sooty blotch and fleisbeck, we can finally use that information, that, that sequence of, of nucleotides, the, essentially the genetic blueprint of the, of the fungi to tell them apart. It's really, really helpful. It's not the only cue that we use. We use their appearance and their function, their, their ecological niche um, as well. But, but that, that DNA uh, sequence information was such an enormous advance that we could, we could finally, we, 15 years ago, we thought there were three or four sooty blotch and fly speck species. But now that we apply DNA routinely sequencing, we know that there's over a hundred different species, and these are these cryptic species that I was talking about that are difficult to tell apart by eye. But once you get into the blueprint, you realize, hey, they're 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 distinctive. They're distinctive, and maybe not just distinctive in their sequence, but also in the way they function, which is what we really care about. If we can pick them apart and tell one from the other, we have a better chance of defeating them, and hopefully, in some more efficient and more environmentally sustainable way. So the methodology involved in just investigating the genetics of these fungi has really opened uh, some really great insights into both their evolution, uh, this pathway from being parasites to now becoming these kind of innocuous inhabitants on the surface, on the waxy surface of a fruit. 
at one time, uh, one of the sort of tenets of fungal evolution was that being a non-pathogen was primitive, and that pathogenesis, the ability to cause disease, evolved out of that. But these fungi seem to be even more advanced. They have, from the evidence, the, uh, the genetic evidence suggests that they were once saprophytes, became parasites, and then reverted back to subsisting on, on the surface as non-parasites. Yeah, this is this is one of the things I love about the Sotoblotchin fly speck story. Evolutionarily, it's just one more indication that um, things don't happen in the straight line that we might think. There's an awful lot of time out there in evolutionary uh, biology, millions and billions of years, and these things don't have television, they don't have streaming, so they have a lot of time to devote to adapting properly to their environment. And what we're looking at now are the survivors, the ones that have made it through uh, those periods. And uh, why? This is a big question when you think about sooty blotch. Why would they give up their cushy day job of penetrating? Their ancestors were you know, penetrating and uh, essentially going into the candy store and eating everything they wanted. Why would they, why would they give up that great lifestyle and live on the surface you know, where there's nothing to eat and they're being bombarded and you know, broiled in the sun and you know, dried out and what's what's the reason for that and that that's a question that's that's intriguing i had a friend from grad school who built a house next to a graveyard and when i asked him why he had done that he said because the neighbors were quiet and i think maybe the sooty blotch fungi have made that same key discovery are they simply avoiding competition maybe no one else wants to live in that neighborhood there are fewer neighbors, right? I mean, you know, where you where you live might not be the greatest, but you don't have a lot of competition for that space. And competition and fighting it out with other organisms, uh, even microorganisms, takes energy. So they've adapted to this low energy environment, perhaps in in part to avoid the the headaches and the the heartaches of uh, they don't have hearts, but the headaches of uh, of they don't have heads either. The problems associated with competition. That may not be the whole story, though. There's another theory out there. Uh, it's it's always hard to prove these things because uh, one can't go back into tens of millions of years of evolutionary past and verify. But the other theory is that um, it actually may be evolutionarily an advantage for these fungi to live on the surface sort of detached uh, biochemically from their own plant hosts. Because they're generalists, they can live on hundreds of different, of ki different kinds of plant hosts. That's kind of like spreading your bets. If you are able to colonize lots of different kinds of hosts, suppose you ent in enter a period where the environment is changing quickly, which we seem to be in right now, some of those host plants will probably go extinct. But if you have hundreds of host plants, you're probably okay because your host plant, even if a couple of them or some of them go extinct, you'll have others that you could still can colonize. So it may be a rather good strategy, this simplification, um, very, very broad host range, maybe a, 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 a good long-term strategy to survive periods when the environment uh, is changing rapidly. They're slow-moving, modest inconspicuous organisms that have lasted a long time and, and may last uh, millions of years yet. 
For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.